0: Today we're going to close out this message run called The Genius of Generosity. And next weekend, uh, weekend worship experience attendance is going to spike because word's going to get out. They're all done talking about generosity, right? Everyone who's been staying away can come back next weekend, and you should. Brandon has a fantastic worship celebration planned for next week around communion and so. And today we're going to close out this series by talking about how God defines generosity, how God himself defines generosity. And in just a moment, the ushers are going to come and they're going to pass around some plates. Uh, They counted the offering and it wasn't enough, and so they're going to... Just kidding. Just kidding. That's just a little church humor, right? Uh, They are going to pass around some plates, and in those plates are some coins. And I'm going to ask you just to take one of those coins that they pass around. Just grab one of those. We want every single one of you, kids and all, to have one of those coins, if you would, when they come by. And as those plates are going around, we believe that you are fantastic multitaskers, and we're going to hear another testimony from some of our Journey Church family on some of their thoughts on generosity. Today we're going to hear from a couple, Carl and Carla Neely. What are the chances? Carl meets Carla in high school, and they get married, Carl and Carla Neely. Let's roll that tape, please.
1: Look, Journey, it's a tie, an actual tie in a video. Who knew? I struggle with being generous, and I know why. Uh, when I was 13, my dad had a heart attack. I um, I took uh, on three jobs to kind of keep my family afloat, and I, I learned the, the value of a dollar. And uh, at the same time, no one really came to visit from the church that summer. Uh, we'd always been active in the church, and, and a lot of his secular friends came over, but but not anybody from the church. And it really, it, it created a, a ill feeling in me. So for the next 25 or so years, I always went to church. I always tied That that was an issue, but I struggled to, to give in the church, uh, to put in some time. And for years, I sat in a church and let everybody feed me and didn't do anything. I guess six, seven years ago, uh, when when Journey came to, to Bozeman, um, a guy in a really fancy shirt and some really pearly whites stood up and said, we're going to That's Brian, in case you missed it. Uh, Put a serving towel. I said, you're going to put a serving towel over your arm. And I remember thinking, ooh, this is not for me. (laughs) And uh, I looked over at at Carla, and she's sitting there, like, nodding. And I I got that feeling right before she asked me to take out the trash. Uh, (laughs) You do. Uh, And uh, I I thought, we're going to be serving. And it was hard on me uh, to serve. Uh, Three times, I... uh, over the last six years when I had uh, worked in the uh, children's ministry, I was like, this is the night. I'm done. I'm not going to work anymore. And uh, I was like, you know, God, you need to give me a sign if if you're going to do this. Like, he's not busy. <laughs> like, he needs to reach out and give me a sign to make sure I work somewhere. And two times, Sam Summers uh, stopped me right as I was on my way out. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. I'm over. I'm not going to work in the children's ministry anymore. And he just gave me a really positive feedback. But the one that was most positive was I was turning out the lights one night, and uh, this little 5-year-old comes wandering back in to grab some indistinguishable, you know, whatever he had drawn. And I was trying to be like, oh, what's that, you know? And and he didn't – he was just kind of like talking. I still didn't understand what it was. But he leaves, and he comes back. And right as I am turning out the light, he comes back, and he said, hey, thank you for helping out. And that's all he said. And I was like, and you, it's not something you get a lot, you know, it's just one of those things that you're just like, you don't have to get a lot in that, but it's, it was just one of those things you're like, oh, now you're just showing off, you know, I mean, you sent the five-year-old back in to make sure I worked in the children's ministry.
2: For me, generosity comes from a place of gratitude. And one thing I teach our daughter is that we are so lucky to be American girls. And I am always trying to give her the best global perspective that I can. and, and hopeful that if she can understand um, the blessings that she's been given, that that will be um, a motivating factor for her out of that gratitude to God for what we've been given to, to do those things. I love how the Bible speaks of generosity. And one of my favorite parts of the Bible is when the, it mentions um, when you give to give cheerfully. And I love the attitude around that. It creates more of a blessing to make sure that you have that heart and that intent. I feel very grateful for all that God has given me. And from that gratitude is a a place of motivation for me. One of the stories of generosity that was was impactful for me was um, when Journey Church had its first capital campaign. And I really liked the boldness with which they were laying it out and how we could contribute, because that was very motivating for me. And Carl and I um, came up with a pledge amount. And when we went to procure those funds, um, they were not available like we thought that they would be. And we had decided that it was very important for us to keep our pledge. And I went to um, sell something that we both owned, but it was precious to me and (laughs) not so precious to Carl. So this item that was precious to me, um, we were able to sell and we were able to meet our pledge amount. Mm-hmm. And what was wonderful about that is um, it felt better to sell it for the church than it was for me to keep it. And I had been in a Bible study that had been studying the book of Matthew um, for um, the entire year. And that next Wednesday, we happened to camp on Matthew nineteen twenty nine. Which not only said, was there a blessing for the specific thing I sold, which I didn't even know, as well as a specific blessing itself.
1: My my story from when I was 13 had a really hard impact on me, you know, and and, uh, I didn't know that until we were setting up for this. It was really funny because I was always like, why is it hard for me to serve in the church? Uh, And then uh, I came up with, after I prayed about it, I was like, yeah, it goes all the way back to when I was 13. and, and, And nobody from the church came by to, you know, check on my dad. And I thought, huh. I guess the reason why I do it is because, uh, I think it has real value. I think that, um, our church needs people to work in it. It needs, it, it's, it's kind of the blood of the church. If you will. Well, I mean, uh I think everybody's been, been places where, um, and to churches where you just feel like it, people are paying lip service to things. And here I feel like people actually are, are trying to live out what they say. And I think that's, that's the impact it had on me. Uh I still struggle with, with serving. I, mean, I, I do. I'd be lying if I didn't. I think everybody is called to do some things. I think you have to figure out what it is for you. Um, I don't think it's how much you give or how many hours you give. I think, are you okay with it? And are you and God okay with it?
0: Great word, Carl. Carla, thank you very much. Carl, by the way, is one of the deans over at Bozeman High School, uh, and so I hire him to keep an eye on Josh and Silas for me, just to make sure everything, every once in a while my phone rings and it's him on caller ID. I'm like, oh boy, the dean's calling. Trouble at the high school. Everybody got a coin? Y'all got one of those? Just hang on to that, uh, if you would, please. And if you've been here through this whole series, you know that I've been talking how generosity is directly tied to our spiritual maturity, isn't it? It is directly tied. How generous we are in everything, our time, our talents, our treasure, our stuff, is directly proportional to the depth of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And see, the idea is that the longer we've been in Christ... The more we've grown in him, the more he's changed us. Well, what do you know? The more generous and open-handed we become with all the stuff that we call ours. But spiritual growth isn't an overnight deal, is it? It evolves quite over time, doesn't it? Let's talk for a moment about baby followers of Jesus, for example. Baby followers of Jesus are folks who haven't been in faith very long. They're brand new in faith in Jesus Christ. And he asked the question, why do baby followers of Jesus Christ obey God? Why? What's their motivation? And honestly, the answer is this. Most new baby followers of Jesus obey God out of a fear of being spanked, don't they? They're worried that they're going to somehow be disciplined or spanked by God. Think about kids when they're little, right? When our kids at our house were toddlers, you know, in the two to four-year-old zone, they were not leaving the decorative glass knick-knacks in our house alone because Dan and I had sat down with them and reasoned with them, saying, now, Bailey, these are mommy's pretties. They're certainly not daddy's pretties, by the way. These are mommy's pretties, and they're just to look at, not to touch. No, no. That isn't how Bailey understood that. No one's toddler thinks on that level. Instead, they're thinking, I can't touch that because if I do, when I do, mommy or daddy is going to slap my hand and that hurt last time. And so I'm just going to leave those alone if I can remember to leave those alone. Right? That's how it works. The Bible even puts words to that truth. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. It sort of starts there, doesn't it? And that's where every brand new baby Christian starts on their walk of faith. They say, I'm just going to obey God because if I don't, he's going to spank me. And baby Christians, they continue, hopefully, to grow in faith, don't they? They're understanding more about who God is. They're being changed a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more every single day. That's the goal. The Holy Spirit of God is working in their heart and in their life. And as their faith grows, watch this, their motivation for obeying God changes. It actually becomes different. They actually begin to say as they mature, I'm going to obey God because when I don't obey him, I cause pain in the heart of my Heavenly Father. And I don't wanna cause pain in the heart of my Heavenly Father. I don't wanna do that. Now, if you're the parent of teenagers, you pray hardcore that your kids get to that level of maturity in Christ, like ASAP, don't you? You're like crying out to God, please, God, let my kids get there. Especially if you're the parents of high school age daughters. You pray that they live at that level of maturity in Christ. And here's why. So that when, they find, when she finds herself in the back seat of her boyfriend's car, and her boyfriend's going, if you love me like you say you love me, then you will fill in the blank, right? You want your daughter, parents, you want your daughter to know how to respond to that. Like right now. You don't want your daughter thinking up her answer on the spot. That would not be a good thing. Now get this, your daughter being afraid of getting her hand slapped by mom or dad doesn't do your kid a bit of good in that moment, does it? We want our teenage daughter's answer to be an emphatic, no, I won't do that. Why? Because it would break my heavenly father's heart. Now knock it off. Take me home. I'm going to tell my dad. That's a fantastic place for us to be in our relationship with Christ. The place that says, I just don't want to do anything that brings pain to the heart of my heavenly father. He's done, he's done so much for me. So I'm just going to obey him. I'm just going to do whatever he asks me to do. Now, that's good. And i got to tell you, there's an even deeper place of spiritual maturity that can be all of ours in Christ. And it's this. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it says. I just want every single thing that I do to bring pleasure to God. I just want every single thing that I do to make God smile. And you actually vocalize it. You pray this. Lord, may every single thing I do, my words, my deeds, my life, my attitudes, my ethics, may they honor and thrill your heart, God. Because at the end of the day, I'm really just living in such a way that I want everything in my life to make Jesus stand up and smile. I just want to make Jesus stand up and smile. I just want to please you, Heavenly Father. And you notice how that maturity process went. Early on, it's all about what we don't do, isn't it? Early on, it's all about what we don't do, and it evolves. To the place where us being spiritually mature is all about what we do. It isn't about what we don't do, it's about what we do. Now get this, that is the precise opposite paradigm of legalism, right? Legalistic followers of Jesus Christ, they think that through their legalism that they have achieved the pinnacle of spiritual maturity, when in reality, they're actually stuck way back here. They're stuck back in the place that says, it's all about what I don't do. That is not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is over here, and it says, whatever I do, I just want to please God and everything. I just want to thrill the heart of God with my whole life. I just want to make God smile. Freedom in Christ. Today, we're going to look at the biblical narrative of someone who understood entirely spiritual maturity someone who absolutely understood what it means and looks like to thrill the heart of God what it looks like to make Jesus stand up and smile let me set the story up in Jesus day there were these receptacles at the temple now the temple was the place where the Jews came to worship God And these receptacles were the spot at the temple where the Jewish worshipers would go and they would drop off their monetary gifts that were used for the upkeep and the maintenance and the worship and the ministry that went on all around the temple. Now very frequently, those receptacles became sort of a stage for the performances of many of the religious leaders of the day. Some of these guys, some of the religious leaders, they would actually, watch this, they would blow trumpets and other similar antics when they were going to put money into that box. Became like a stage show of sorts. Now you ask, why in the world would they do that? Because they wanted everyone to pay attention to their giving. That's kind of gross, isn't it? And so one day, Jesus and his disciples, they were sitting near one of those giving receptacles right outside the temple, and we pick up the story, Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 1. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 1. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins one of which you have. These are replicas of the very thing that the widow dropped into that box. You have one of those. That's what that is. And she dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them. For they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has everything she has and so you kind of get the scene don't you there's these rich people they're coming by they're plunking their big old gifts into that box they're dropping in these giant bags of coins that are sort of landing with a thud at the bottom of the box clanging against the other money that's already inside there and then along comes this widow and we don't know much about this lady But we know that she does this absolutely amazing thing. And in doing so, she reveals her spiritual maturity. She does something that brings Jesus to his feet, puts a smile on his face, thrills the heart of God. What did she do? She put in these two very small coins. We've come to call them what? The widow's mites, right? Right? You have one of them. And she brings a smile to Jesus' face by dropping two of these into that box. They're equivalent of our modern-day penny. Almost worthless. And you read the Mark account of this same narrative. We see Jesus actually call out to his followers, and he sort of draws them into this huddle. It's kind of the picture we get. He huddles his disciples around, and he goes, Look, did you see that? Did you see that? That is amazing. And he's talking about this woman giving two almost worthless coins in that box. Keep your hands down. No show of hands on this one. But how many people here today relate to that widow? How many people here relate to that widow? You're just bust. You're broke. Bills more than your income. You're stretched to the max every week every two weeks, every month, you totally identify with the widow in that story. And at the very same time that a bunch of us identify most closely with the widow, how many of us wish that we were the rich people from Jesus' story, plunking in big old bags full into that receptacle? How many of us wish that we were the rich guys? And here's what a bunch of people who identify with the widow do. And here's what they say. They say, there's just never enough. My income versus expenses is just way too wide a gap. If I just had more, then I'd be generous. If I didn't have to work so hard all the time, then I'd have time extra left over in the tank so that I could actually serve If I wasn't always so stressed out, I'd share my spiritual gifts with the church. If I just had some overflow of money and time, then I'd give. Then I'd be generous. If I could be just like those rich guys in the story Jesus tells, if I had piles left over at the end of every day, end of every week, end of every month, then I'd be generous. Then I'd be giving. Now the interesting thing about that, you notice this from the text, Jesus is entirely and completely unimpressed with the rich guys in that story, isn't he? He is entirely and completely unimpressed with the rich guys. He's not standing up and smiling about their big old gifts, is he? And yet a whole bunch of us, we really want to be like them. And Jesus is calling out to us and he's going like, ha-ah. You don't get it. It's that woman's lack. It's everything that she doesn't have that allows her the opportunity to thrill God's heart because you see God's measure of generosity isn't the size of the gifts that we give but rather it's the measure of our sacrifice it's about the measure of our sacrifice and people think that they have to have a lot to be generous that isn't generosity generosity as God views it is the decisions that we make to be generous with everything in our lives our time, our talents, our treasure, everything that we call ours, when we don't have enough. Not when we have overflow. Not when we have extra. Generosity is about this conscious decision to be generous when there isn't enough. And you see, it's in those decisions that we have the opportunity to thrill the heart of God, just like the widow did. Frankly, just like these churches in a place called Macedonia did Let me shift gears for just a moment. The Apostle Paul, one of the great Christians of all time, he wrote frequently about how generous many of the New Testament churches were. And he didn't write about them to brag them up. He was just inviting and calling other churches to, to a similar level of generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 to 4, Paul does that right here. They, the churches in Macedonia, are being tested by many troubles and they are very Poor, And you look at what those words mean, it means like they're living in extreme poverty, like less than a dollar a day in our modern day equivalent. They are very poor. Watch this though. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it out of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Drew. Begged. They begged. And you get a sense that these churches are thrilling God's heart. They're causing Jesus to stand up and smile like the widow. So there's these churches, they're in Macedonia, the people who make up those churches, they're eking by, they're very poor, and they heard about their Jewish brothers and sisters who are suffering in a famine, and they wanted to give, they begged for the privilege of giving. No one coerced them, no one guilted them into giving, they just saw it as this incredible privilege, the chance to be generous, and they made sacrifices, very poor, people living in extreme poverty, they made Sacrifices. Christ followers who didn't have much shared generously with Christ followers who had even less. And their generosity cost them something. By their generosity, they put themselves at risk, which is quite a picture of generosity, isn't it? Now, people misapply the story of the widow like crazy. Back to the story of the widow. And they say, like, look, it doesn't matter how much you give. It's really all about the heart that's behind the gift. If your heart's right, any amount, even just a couple of pennies is pleasing to the heart of God. But really, that's missing the point. Certainly on one hand, they're absolutely right. We already talked about it. God measures generosity not by the size of our gift, rather by the measure of our sacrifice. So when Jesus says what he says in that text of the poor widow, that she has given more than all of the rest of them, For they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything that she has. And so Jesus is saying what Paul's saying about the Macedonian churches. That her sacrifice put her way of life at risk. She literally gave everything she had. And in doing so, she demonstrates more spiritual maturity. Much, much, much more than the supposed religious experts at the temple. Generosity was such a part of her that she put her desire to thrill God's heart ahead of her own needs. God measures generosity by the measure of our sacrifice. And the litmus test for a sacrificial gift is when your generosity impacts your lifestyle. That's a sacrifice. When our generosity impacts our way of life, that's sacrifice. And that widow's generosity certainly impacted her way of life. She still has bills to pay, doesn't she? She is not done for the month. The lamp, it needs oil. The donkey hasn't been to the donkey wash yet this month. The butcher gave her meat on credit. There are bills to pay. And in the midst of that, she exhibits sacrificial generosity to honor God. Because she believes to the core of herself that generosity is a way of life. Generosity flows out of a heart that's filled with worship of Almighty God. Generosity isn't just a series of isolated acts here and there. And generosity as a way of life is rooted in three truths and we're gonna wrap up today on these. Three truths that the widow who brought Jesus to his feet, the widow who thrills the heart of Jesus, she knows these and she knows them really well. The first one is this. Generosity always and forever begins with God. Generosity always always and forever begins with God. At the end of the day, generosity of time, of talent, of treasure, it is the visible expression of God's infinite, incomprehensible love for us. We're generous because we've seen and experienced firsthand the overflow of God's heart for us. Look at James 1.17 with me. Whatever is good, And perfect comes down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Every single good thing that we have, including the air that we breathe, is a gift from God. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Listen very, very carefully to what Paul wrote about God's love for us. Very famous words, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. When I think of all this, Paul writes, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him And power that comes from God. Do you really understand how much God loves you? Do you really get it? And Paul's saying like, once you do, you cannot help but be changed. Transformed. And it's not about the money. It is not about the money. Money is just a symptom. It's not about our time and it's not about our talents either. Those are all just symptoms. The genius of generosity is about us grasping the extravagant, undying love of God for us. And God loves you not because you've done everything right, God loves you not because you've done anything that's earned His favor. God loves you not because we're worthy of his love. He simply loves you because it's who he is at his core, at his nature, at his heart, the very essence of who God is. It's who he is. And when we get his love and his generosity toward us, it has this transformative effect of loosening our grip on the stuff that we call ours here on earth. And we start to understand We've been blessed to be a blessing. We've been blessed to give it away. If you're looking for something to do in your quiet times with God, maybe you're struggling on how you should spend your 20-mile march time with Jesus, here's an idea. Just one idea. I'll just throw this out for you. No charge for this. Freebie. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. Just set up camp there. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19 for the next 30 days. Take the whole month of February and just make camp there. Pray through that text. Meditate on that text. Memorize that text. Let your heart marinate in that text. And just see how God's extravagant love begins to take root in you. And just see how compelled you are to express that kind of love toward all of the people in your life. Generosity always and forever begins with God. The second truth that that widow knows is that generosity as a way of life is just one of the ways that we express our love for God. There's all kinds of ways we can do that, express our love for God. Generosity is just one of them. Jesus, he was about to leave his earthly ministry. He had one last teaching moment with his disciples the last night that they were together. And this verse is one of the nuggets that Jesus imparts to his followers, John 14, 15. If you love me, very simple, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. Parting wisdom from Jesus to his followers, that includes us, by the way. And so you read that verse and you go, there is absolutely a litmus test for whether or not we truly love Jesus Christ. There is a litmus test test. It's objective, and it's us doing what he's commanded us to do, just doing it. And these days, there's a lot of movement in the Christian church that says that loving God is about singing big Chris Tomlin anthems, feeling all kinds of warm fuzzies about our friendship with God, doing an occasional good deed here. They're participating in some good cause going on somewhere on planet earth. And I gotta say, those are all good things. They're all part of the journey of faith in God. But we show our love for God day in and day out by doing what he asks of us. Just doing what he asks of us. And doing what he asks of us doesn't have anything to do with how we feel in a given moment, does it? Because you see, I contend that the widow who dropped her two very last cents into that box outside the temple, I guarantee that she didn't do that because she felt like doing it. Quite the opposite, I'm certain. But by her action, she was making a declarative statement about who she loved first and foremost. Her little gift, as pathetic as it seems, shouted out, I love God more than I love anything else. Do our lives and everything about our lives shout that very same thing out? I love God more than I love anything else because we reveal day in and day out what we love most, who we love most. If you love me, obey my commandments, Jesus says. And generosity is one of the ways that we express our love for God, no matter how we feel in a given moment. Number three, last one. Generosity as a way of life applies to every area of our lives. I wanna show you how far God intends our generosity to go. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You know this text. Paul writes, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, he pleads with us, to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Generosity affects all of us, our entire lives, up on the altar, given to God as living sacrifices. It's us laying down our lives and saying, here I am, God. Praying that prayer. Here I am, God. All of me. Every single thing that I am, every single thing that I have, it's All yours to do with as you choose. And that's way, way, way bigger than our money and our stuff. It's about all of us. Our entire life and being. And we hear those words, living sacrifice, and that raises fear and trepidation in a bunch of us, doesn't it? We ask questions coming out of that verse going like, what if I end up suffering for the gospel in another country? What if God asks me to change my standard of living? What if my chosen career path isn't the one that God wants for me? What if God wants for me to never ever be married? What if God wants me to carry this pain for the rest of my life? And all of that, honestly, it's entirely possible, isn't it? But fearing those things comes from quite an errant view of God, doesn't it? Because what we know about God is he isn't just some harsh killjoy out to make life miserable for us. God is a kind, benevolent father who always, and when I say always, I mean always, Always has our highest best interest in mind. Always. So, whenever sacrifice is part of his plan for us, it's directly tied to this truth of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, which is an incredible text. Now, all glory to God who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. infinitely more than we might ask or think which means that God's intention is to give us far better than we can even imagine as he choose to work through our desires and our convictions not against them to accomplish his stuff his purposes his will his way in our lives infinitely more than we can ask or think infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. And we can imagine pretty grandiose, can't we? And God goes, I can top that. I can top that. Interestingly, the text doesn't tell us what happens next with the widow, does it? All we know is that she gave all she had, and then she goes on about her business No show of hands on this. Just think about this in your head and in your heart. How many of you think that the story ends with that woman going home starving to death? End of her story. End of her life. Because she gave everything she had. She went home and died. Let's take the other side of the coin. No pun intended. How many think that she went on and because she chose to honor God by living generously that God took care of her? That God just took care of her that's where i'm at that's what i believe happened the question is am i willing to live like i believe it am i willing to live like i believe that are you willing to live like you believe it are you Take your stuff and set it aside if you would and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and have some interaction time with the Lord around all that stuff. While you're praying, I just want to interject a few questions for you to ruminate on with the Lord. What in your life is bringing a smile to Jesus' face? What in your life is thrilling the heart of God? What in your life is causing him to stand to his feet? Are you living your life in such a way that is thrilling to the heart of God? And if you are, way to go. Good job. Let me ask this. What's the next faith adventure that God has for you? What's the next bold step of faith that God's mapped out for you? if in these honest moments of reflection as you ponder those questions and you realize there isn't much if anything in my life that's thrilling to the heart of God there isn't much in my life bringing a smile to Jesus' face causing him to stand to his feet let me ask you this if that's you what needs to go? What's just simply got to go? What's God trying to prune out of you? so that you can be about thrilling his heart just like the widow did. What's gotta go? What's gotta be trimmed back, pruned back, thrown away? Just invite you to transact whatever business you need to do with God around those questions, maybe some others too that he's brought to heart and mind. Give you a moment on those. while you're still in a posture of prayer, I just have to say this. John three sixteen from the Bible. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Listen to what the Bible says. For God loved the world. That's you. That's you. Just put your name in there. For God loved you so much that he gave his one and only son, So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God loves you so much that his love compelled him to give so generously that he gave his one and only son to die on the cross cruelly for you. For you. And what absolutely puts a smile on Jesus' face, what absolutely causes Jesus to stand to his feet, what absolutely thrills the heart of God is when people like you and me respond to his incredibly generous gift of Jesus by giving him our heart and our life. That's what he wants from you more than he wants anything else ever. He loves you. He gave his life for you. And in light of everything he gave for you, you can just step away from whatever method you've been chasing to try to fix yourself, whatever you've been trying to do to earn your way, improve your way to God, you can just put it all down. And you can just simply respond and give your whole self to him. Come home. You can come home to God today and he forgives you and he washes you clean in the shed blood of Jesus, he makes you new. And maybe you're here today and God's knocking on the door of your heart. Why not respond to him? Why not answer the door? And you can do that by praying along with me like this. God, I know. Frankly, I know, Jesus, that there's nothing in my life that's thrilling your heart. There's nothing in my life that's making you smile. There's nothing in me that's making you stand to your feet. And still, you love me enough to die for me on the cross and I just say thank you. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for setting me free. All I can do is respond, God, by giving you my heart. Here it is. Here's everything I am. Wash me, make me new. Please, God, by the power of your death, burial, and resurrection, I'm yours. And if that's your prayer today, That's the single biggest decision of your whole life. It's such a big deal that we like to acknowledge that decision. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, would you boldly slip your hand up and lock eyes with me right here, right now? Just make sure I see you. You can do that now. And just let me say yes with you. changed and you're different this is it yes and there yes this is it God our simple prayer is that we want every single thing in our lives everything about us to bring a smile to your face, to cause you to stand to your feet. We want every single thing about our lives to thrill your heart. It's not about what we don't do. It's about what we do for you, in you, because of you. God, may the thought of this widow who gave her everything, may it compel us remind us every moment of every single day what it looks like to be generous to be generous far 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 beyond just our stuff beyond just our money beyond just with everything remind us what it is to be generous God you're the best we worship you we adore you with our whole lives everything that we are